The Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello, and welcome to the Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. There couldn't be any other main story this week. The sale at Christie's New York of Leonardo da Vinci's Salvatore Mundi for $450 million, including fees. In a moment, I'll be speaking to Judd Tully, who reported for the art newspaper from the salesroom on Wednesday night. And later in the programme, we'll hear from Aaron Sito, the director of the new Museum McCann in Jakarta, Indonesia. But first to New York. Judd Tully is on the line and was there to witness the world record price ever paid for a work of art at Christie's auction on Wednesday. Judd, you've reported on auctions for many years. How did this one compare to the others that you've covered? I would say it's a bit unprecedented, or we can't say a bit. It was uh, pretty amazing just in the sense of the numbers. I mean, personally for me, I found it more exciting when um, Van Gogh's uh, portrait of Dr. Gachet sold for $82.5 million at Christie's New York back in May 1990, but that was, you know, completely different time. Um, what was extraordinary was, you know, just the scale, the price. Um, in the sales room at Christie's, uh, which is actually the same one that Dr. Gachet sold at, it was a packed room. Um, Everyone was looking for these special red paddles that Christie's dreamed up. Sometimes they use it in uh, jewelry sales to kind of vet potential bidders who wanted to bid on the Leonardo because it was, uh, you know, suggested that the estimate was something like in the region of 100 million. And actually, during the early part of the 19 minute long marathon um, battle for the painting, you see Pilcannon, the auctioneer, when the price went to $90 million, he said, he told the sales room, uh, I can sell it at 90 And, you know, it seemed kind of, wow, there's no interest. And then that seemed to just trigger this bidding war between... Um, three anonymous telephone bidders and I believe there was one person in the room I couldn't see them but as the numbers ticked up and they started uh, the bidding at 70 million and they moved quite along easily at 5 million and then I think it was Louis Guzer who's Christie's chairman of post-war contemporary whatever and sort of the if you want to call it the mastermind behind the uh, this whole marketing campaign for the painting for the Leonardo, he jumped. I think it was ten million dollars, and then you just saw this sort of shootout between incredibly wealthy people, and the numbers kept going up. And as they went and surpassed the Picasso price for his uh, painting that made, I think it was one hundred and seventy-nine million. You could start hearing gasps in the room, and uh, and it just kept going. And, I mean, it was just kind of flabbergasting, uh, flabbergasting that there didn't seem to be any end of it. And, you know, the, it, at certain points, the bidding slowed down, and then it, you know, it was only, only $2 million increments. 
And then all of a sudden, Alex Rotter, who's uh, co-chairman, I think, of the post-war and formerly uh, head of Sotheby's Contemporary Art, and he moved over to Christie's um, about a year ago. Uh, suddenly, he raises the, uh, the bidding by $30 million to, from 370 when it was at 370 to 400 and that did it. And, and what happened? So when the, gavel, when the gavel finally thwacked down... Was there what was there applause? Was there a, a kind of stunned silence? It was uh, you know whistles, clapping, hooting. Uh, you know it was like a party. I mean it was very theatrical. The whole thing was you know like a performance art piece, and I think just everyone was just dumbfounded. So I'm interested in who makes what out of this deal. What's the usual split between the vendor and the auction house? Yeah, well, that question does not have a simple answer because every so-called guarantee or financial arrangement made between the seller and the auction house is confidential, and it just depends how important the client is that has the painting or their attorneys or some combination thereof. what happens, I mean, you've got, for instance, on the Leonardo, the buyer's premium was uh, a shade over $50 million. And the buyer's premium means typically that that amount of money goes to the auction house. But there's something called enhanced hammer, which would be part of this negotiation where the seller would receive part of that buyer's premium. Now, how big of a part? Hard to say. But when you consider the seller who's widely known to be, or at least a trust representing the um, Russian uh, potash oligarch uh, Dmitry Ryabolovev, I might be horribly mispronouncing his name. (laughs) Not to worry. He, I would imagine cut a pretty good deal and it's you know it's if christie's was saying you know region of 100 million and then you figure that the third party meaning someone not being christie's came in and guaranteed uh, a bid at that price that person will get again a uh, certain amount of money for taking the risk now, it's a percentage. It can be, you know, if it goes $10 million more, we'll give you an extra X percent, or if it goes $20 million. And they have these things sliced and diced and, you know, over whatever price. So um, how much money Christie's made on it? I wouldn't know. Um, I mean, I'd love to know. <laughs> but it's just phenomenal that... Um, the price that was achieved for this one painting um, pretty much represented the entire total of Christie's Impressionist modern sale on Monday night. Didn't quite, but it you know it came within twenty five million dollars of, of 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 that. So it, you know people I, I or I am you know just kind of digesting that. I, I mean, you've got to say this is a one-off 
transaction. I was I was going to say is I mean it's one cannot imagine it's such a leap as you say from what was it 179 million for the Picasso yeah. to to yeah. this 450 million with fees for this it you can't imagine this is going to be broken at least for a very very long time. Yeah, I mean it's been reported um in private transactions that painting sold, I think it was uh, Willem de Kooning's Interchange that was owned by David Geffen's foundation. Yeah. And that sold to the Chicago hedge fund magnet Ken Griffin privately uh, in a transaction that also included a Jackson Pollock painting uh, for $300 million. Yeah. That's fairly recently. And those two paintings are hanging in the Art Institute in Chicago on loan yeah. from Mr. Griffin. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it, it just, but it just kind of broke all the rules, especially uh, since a lot of people felt the painting was in such dire shape and only had traces, some people say 20% of the actual hand of Leonardo. Well, that's it. The, the, condition, the condition report appeared between the announcement that the sale was taking place and the sale itself. A condition report reported that there was a knot in the walnut panel, which meant that the, there'd been a significant split in the painting. And, it, you know, there's actually that black and white picture out there which shows the painting before it was more recently restored. There'd been all sorts of restorations over time. And this most recent restoration that took place, there is a photograph of it pre-restoration and it, it's pretty, it, it's pretty damaged. <laughs> it should be said. I mean, it, you know, I think a lot of people, it raised a lot of eyebrows, but clearly it hasn't bothered the, these, the people bidding for the work. Absolutely true. I mean, uh, and it wasn't, you know, a situation where, Oh yeah, it's really damaged and they managed to find, you know, someone in, not sophisticated that just wanted a trophy and put in one bid and got it for a hundred million, you know, case closed. This was, uh, you know, the three telephone bidders, two of them were associated the executives of Christie's with the post-war department. But the third was, um, was the head of, um, uh, Christie's old master department and presumably on the line with someone sophisticated in that, world there's there's a bit of speculation out there but is there any hard information about who might have bought it uh no i i asked after the sale alex rotter you know if he could say anything about the buyer and of course he said no but i during the auction looking at alex he was speaking quite a bit on the phone with his bidder and it looked or seemed to be someone that he knew. My thought about it is, you know, could it be, uh, you know, somewhere in some uh, desert kingdom? But, you know, this is a picture of Christ. So um, I think that would be a pretty major turnoff. But it's anyone's guess. I mean, I, you know, as, as um, Robert Simon said um, just after the sale, he hoped that whoever the buyer turned out to be would be either an institution or someone who would, you know, make the painting available to the public because it is such a rare thing. How did it affect the other works in the sale? So the contemporary work. So was there any noticeable either positive or negative effects? I would say it was pretty negative. 
Uh, and the best example of that is, and who would want to follow that, but there was a Basquiat painting. Uh, the, Le- the Leonardo was lot nine. And after, you know, the shouting died down, the Basquiat came up, a 1982 canvas, um, El Duce, that Basquiat painted in um, Italy um, on a trip there in 1982, that that year is the best year, considered the best year of Basquiat's short uh, uh, life work. And it was estimated at 25 to 35 million, and it didn't sell. And to top that off, Christie's had a full guarantee on it, meaning probably they were out um, at the low end, so let's say $25 million. So right there, they lost half of the buyer's premium on the, um, from the Leonardo. But, I mean, it just goes to show that it's, you know, the, the, the art market isn't you know, totally bulletproof. And even the uh, big, I mean, giant 60 Last Suppers by Andy Warhol, which Christie's, of course, paired in their promotion of the Leonardo with the 60 um, Last Suppers, and they made a big deal of the fact that um, the painting was shown with other versions, Warhol's painting, of that painting that came up um, with an estimate of around $50 million. Um, That was shown in Milan, um, I guess in the late 1980s, uh, in an exhibition that was held directly across the street where the Leonardo Last Supper is in that uh, chapel um, in Milan. So the painting sold, but it just sold for, you know, perhaps on two bids. It had a third-party backing just like the Leonardo. And what about Sotheby's has its contemporary sale Tonight, we, I think we, we should say we're recording this on Thursday, so we won't be able to report on this for the podcast. But Sotheby's is has a contemporary sale on Thursday night in New York, and what do you think will happen there? Is is it going to be a bit after the Lord Mayor's show, or do you think this this Leonardo sale might somehow bring energy to that sale too? All I can say is is that Sotheby's has uh, Michael Schumacher's. Uh, Grand Prix Formula One race car that they're offering. Um, It's not a Leonardo, but I mean, you know, all the houses are trying, you know, just like whatever we can do, let's try to, you know, make it more exciting. But I think tonight at Sotheby's, it'll be, you know, more quote unquote normal because it's, that's what it is. It's a contemporary art sale and there are no, uh, distractions and um, the same. You know, Phillips is also having a sale. I've heard this before from auction house experts. When there's a big price achieved for any artist, after that happened, uh, every collector in the world that owns a work by, say, whether it's Peter Doig or Andy Warhol, will come to the Sotheby's or Christie's or wherever. And say, oh, now my painting is worth this, and it's hardly, and it's not. So it's, you know, it's, it might, you know, jiggle the market a little bit, but I, I don't think this painting is going to have any large effect on the overall market, especially 
you know, the contemporary market. Well, Judd, it's been fantastic having you telling us about the evening and uh, thank you so much for coming on. Sure. Thank you. Now to Indonesia. The Museum McCann opened on the 4th of November in Jakarta and Lisa Movius went to interview its director, Aaron Sito, to hear about the museum and about the Indonesian art scene in general. So perhaps you could start off with just a couple minute introduction of the museum and the exhibition. The Museum of Modern and Contemporary Art New Centaurum is the uh, new mu- is a new museum of modern contemporary art in Jakarta. The grand opening exhibition is called Art Turns, World Turns, Exploring the Collection of the Museum of Museum Machan. And it incorporates ninety works from a collection of around eight hundred and it charts the history of Indonesian um, art alongside or in the context of, of broader uh, global histories. Um, it, I suppose the main preposition is that art is influenced by, by all kinds of uh, social and politi- political issues, and these are not just um, primarily located in one place, but they resonate over, over, over broader geographies. It was interesting to see in the show how much of an interplay there is between the Western art schools and the Indonesian art development. Can you talk about how, why there is so much interplay and why there was the influence? One of the sections of the exhibition um, looks at some of the kinds of aesthetic arguments that were happening in, in, in around the mid, mid-century between um, schools of figuration and schools of abstraction. And these are very strong here in Indonesia. It, the, the, it's it's characterized by the Jogja school, which is around the figuration, and the Bandung school, which is which is which is about abstraction. They start around the, around the mid-century, but they're also part of a much broader conversation around. Uh, the roles that artists play in the formation of different types of political attitudes, so um, um, so ideals of realism on one hand, and then on the other hand, um, the the Bandung School, it, some of its precursors, some of its kind of um, initial starting points are around the influence of Islamic um, aesthetics. So br- briefly, within that period of the ex- part of the exhibition, we're looking at the, the relationship between um, Bandung and Jogja, but we're also um, it's also the time of the the emergence of the Cold War. You know that, that again, there are, there are similar similar types of of um, um, arguments that are happening in other in other parts of the world around figuration and around um, uh, abstraction, and because of, of Indonesia's position within the within the kind of um, uh, Second World War, it is a, it, a lot of those a lot of those um, aesthetic forms are, are here and they play out in different ways. Now, this museum, of course, is very interesting because it's in many ways the first of its kind in Indonesia. Can you say in what regards it's the first and also why has it taken so long to get something like this here? Um, what we mean by being the first of our kind is that uh, we're the first modern contemporary art museum. Um, we are purpose-built. 
we also have um, proper proper um, facilities so we can control climate, humidity, all of those things that, that are required. We also have conservation on site. Obviously, Indonesia has a lot of very well-known, both in the region and internationally, contemporary artists. But why is it important for them to have institutions domestically? Um, well, it's really important because I, I suppose one of, one of the things that Indonesia is known for is uh, if, if an outsider looking at the Indonesian scene, is, it, they probably know about the strength of its market. Um, and so what happens is, well, what has happened is that um, there's really great, great grassroots scene, which has done a lot of the international networking and a lot of the, has been an important conduit for, for artists to have their work seen elsewhere and for artists from elsewhere to be, to, to come into, into the, into Indonesia. Um, it's got a strong, com- strong commercial scene, but there hasn't been really a place where the work of contemporary artists get housed or, or, or a place where uh, further research and further study about contemporary art can, can occur. Um, it is important for a healthy ecology to have, have, uh, have a museum. I mean, not just for, for artists, but also for the general general public and, the, and as, a, as, a, as a civic place, you know, mm-hmm. as a place which, which encourages um, uh, civic conversations. I suppose that's why it's important for, for museums to exist. Uh, I suppose one of the examples was um, we recently acquired a work by Aramayani, who's a um, very important uh, artist who really emerged at the moment of the global the emergence of global contemporary. Um, she her work is pro- was provocative in the sense that she was kind of looking at, at at the broader cultural exchanges that have happened over long longer periods of time, and um, uh, looking really wanting to to ensure that artistic freedoms and and uh, the conversations around around religious freedoms um, can happen in, in in public, and so the the work that we we acquired acquired was is called Lingayoni. It it, it um, has an image of uh, a linga and a yoni, um, at, which is kind of iconography that exists every everywhere, and it's ancient icon- iconography. But but it but for some people it, it, it can be quite offensive, it, not offensive, but it can be quite confronting to 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 to, to see. So this this of course was a, a completely different time. It's not it was a work that was made in the ni- 1990s. And anyway, so the the after this work, she had to leave the. She, well, she felt that she had to leave. The country and so she went to Australia and, and also to, to Germany. Um, the work is important to her own history, her own histories and, as, as an artist uh, and it, she thought that it had, dis, had, had been destroyed. Um, we, we located it and we uh, eventually acquired the work and so when we told the artist that this work of hers which she um, hadn't seen for for a long time. She thought was 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 destroyed. Was in the collection. It was in good condition. She was super emotional about it because uh, one, um, well, a num- for a number of reasons. She thought that it was important for the work to be seen again in Indonesia. She didn't think that it would ever be able to be presented again again here. And two, that the, uh, artists like her want, uh, are making work to um, contribute to a broader discussion of Indonesian um, culture. 
and she um, there there a museum like this museum will allow for those uh, conversations to happen in public. And it's it's very interesting the show the way it, it goes through the political periods and. You already mentioned how inter- interlocking the art and the politics are compared to, especially elsewhere in the region, where mm. they tend to shy away from politics. Can you can you go into that a bit more? The relationship between politics and art in Indonesia. During the independence wars, artists were very, very uh, important in the sense that they helped to mobilize a, a kind of attitude towards independence. Um, that they're, that they're, and not only were they active in terms of um, political participation, that they, through their political participation, helped to to formulate a number of different perspectives or different drivers for for the development of of modern art. Um, it's just, I mean, it's 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 it is the. It's something which is actually quite very is very interesting to look at in, in in the Indonesian in the Indonesian situation. And how how is it today in terms of the interaction between artists and politics in well, Indonesia? I mean, I think that today is uh, is a very very different situation, and and this is something that we've made clear in the ex, in the exhibition. The the last section of the exhibition we've called the global soup. So it's a, a period when globalization really transforms the ways in which um, artists see themselves in the context of other artists, how artists see themselves in context of their nation or another nation, how, how um, information is facilitated by technology, all of those things which, which, which dissolve those very discrete um, ideas of... of um, well, well, those, they actually create different... different Conceptions of indivi- of the individual, mm-hmm. um, but Indonesia and Southeast Asia is very interesting. I think at this mm-hmm. point because um, at the, on one hand you've got the kind of global participation, but you've also got uh, national uh, and regional um, affiliations that, that, that occur. That, that, that even and this is not just um, Southeast Asia and Indonesia; it's actually all around the world. That that we might we might exist in a global in, in a in a global field. But we still identify as as nation states, and we still our economies and our um, the ways in which we participate in in, in those tro- broader institutional frameworks is is guided by either national or regional um, uh, um, situations. And so there's a very interesting conflict that that that, is, that occurs in that last section of the exhibition between uh, the articulations of nation and the um, the the attraction or the or, the, or some of the issues within the, within the global. In the last couple of days, I've been here. I've been it's been interesting, but also worrying to hear about how with the elections coming up, there's resurgence in the kind of nativism and Indonesian nationalism, kind of a reflection of what's happening elsewhere around the world. Is that something that's of concern to the art world or more removed? Um, you know, when you look at the history of art, especially in the from in the contemporary period, that artists are constantly engaging with um, um, uh, this type of this type of politics. Um, it is, and, and of course, artists are really great barometers of of how these things are playing out in in, in the broader social in the broader social situation. Um, the the attitude of the museum is that our role is to um, 
uh, to work with artists. And of course, that these these issues come up in in in, in the things that we present. Um, but we, of course, need to do this in a way which is um, uh, we, in which we can communicate to a broad, into a broader public. What else is interesting and noteworthy in terms of the last couple of years of the Indonesian art scene? There's a younger generation of artists which is probably not included in this exhibition. Um, it's, it's, it's not there and it's obviously something which, which uh, the museum is, is in, in interested. Who emerge from that kind of um, global participation and are making work which is completely um, not not recognizably in, in Indonesian and that's actually really 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 exciting um, it means that there's a, a completely different way of thinking and a different different organization which is which is at play which is yet to be yet to be f- uh, fully articulated within within uh, these types of institutional um, uh, places And that's all for this episode. You can read the full story about the historic Leonardo auction online at theartnewspaper.com and about the McCann Museum in November's print edition. If you like the podcast, please subscribe, and if you have a moment, post a rating or review. You can also let us know what you think on Twitter or Facebook at The Art Newspaper, and follow us on Instagram at theartnewspaper.official. Thanks for listening. <laughs>